We sometimes forget how blessed we are to have musicians like Chris and Casey, right? People who can do this. Thank you for leading us every day this week. You know everyone in the world has some degree of power or the other. There is no time to observe it like the holidays, so I'm just going to give you my three favorite. It's okay. It's okay. But if I was out here, it wouldn't have been okay. So how about if I stay here? Three, my three favorite, uh, I, I, I like to watch people during the holidays in particular. Here are their three favorite. Um, you, you, you watch the power in these interactions. In line at the Sears department store, Inland Center, which I don't really know why we still go over there. There's just nothing there. But we're in line. And there is an elderly couple that's come from the high desert, and they're getting impatient. And the gentleman says to the woman serving us, he says to her, he snaps his fingers, he said, excuse me, do you see this face? Don't worry, it looked like this when I got in line. Yeah. It was a pretty wrinkly, carcassy kind of skin. <laughs> a different department store, another older woman. She snapped her fingers also and said to the person at the cash register, excuse me, I just want to know now, are you going to call for help or are you going to serve us or make us wait all day? Because I've lived a long life. In that same store, there's a man and a woman. They're standing in line to buy shoes. He says, look at these slippers. She says, I don't want slippers for Christmas. Gentlemen, that means something. He says, yeah, but look at these slippers. Look at how your foot just slides right in. She says, isn't that kind of the point of slippers? <laughs> right? I don't want slippers, she reminds him again. You don't want slippers because you've never had these slippers. <laughs> and now he's touching them. And he picks them up. Look at how soft these slippers are. She says, do you listen to me at all? Do you listen to me at all? I don't want slippers. I don't want slippers. And she marches out of the store. While he's holding the slippers, he's probably already bought her for Christmas, right? <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? But here's my favorite from the holiday season. We're also in the shoe store. There's a mother and a lot of children running around. One of them has been put in charge of the little ones, so here's a sibling, I don't know, she's 10, 11 years old, and she's got a little sister. And she yells at the little sister, you stay with me or the peoples are going to get you. <laughs> Do you hear me? The peoples in the store will take you. <laughs> the little girl's just looking up like... Now the sister grabs the ponytails of the younger one and starts to yank on them. Do you understand me? You stay here or the peoples are going to get you. She is crying and screaming while her older sister is yanking on these ponytails. And I'm thinking, I'd rather go with the peoples. <laughs> I'll take my chance with the peoples. Everybody in the world has some degree of power. First reality I want to place in front of us today. Our teaching from Scripture this morning 
comes in the middle of a calm and sacred dinner meal. Jesus with his disciples, his students, they've now lived with him for three years. What we've been speaking about the last two days, the kind of equilibrium, a life patterned after Jesus, that kind of equilibrium, these students should know something about it by now. They've had a calm and sacred meal. It's the what we learn later to call the Last Supper. Jesus will leave the table from that meal and go to a trial and a courtroom and a cross. It's at that sacred meal, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. At a sacred Last Supper, a dispute arose. It's the only time in the New Testament that word is used, a dispute. It means an aggravated and aggressive tug of war. A battle arose among them as to who would be the greatest. Who's on top of the pile? Because they have an idea something is going on, and they, they just would like to get the pecking order straight, and, and they're pretty sure that Jesus is close to the top where God would be. And Jesus just told them that one of their friends, Judas is at the bottom because he's about to betray Jesus. So that means all of the rest of these disciples, these students are somewhere in between. And, and the question is, where are we? How do we line up in the pecking order around here? A careful reading of the text, if we could all read the original language, the text actually says a dispute arose among them as to who would be greater. Great, greater, greatest. It truly is lining themselves up, looking left, looking right, and asking the question, am I better than him? Do I come out on top of her? Who's the greatest? This is how Jesus has the conversation with them. A dispute arose among them, verse 24 of Luke 22. As to which of them was considered to be the greatest, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves you? Is it not the one who's at the table? I have been at the table with you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who serves you. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I now confer upon you a kingdom, just as my father conferred upon me. Let me just pause there. They look to the left. They look to the right. Jesus says to them, your question does not make sense in my kingdom. Do you see me sitting at the table with you? Haven't I been the one serving you? What is all of this great, greater, greatest? That's nonsense in the world in which we've been traveling. Everybody, though, wants to be great or greater or greatest. Second reality. We all have power, some kind of power, and we all want to be great in some way. I'm buying a hybrid in the middle of the summer. It's taken me a long time to make this decision, two years, two to three years. So I'm sitting with the salesperson at the dealership. He hears I want to buy a hybrid, and he says to me, oh, that's just a really bad idea. He pulls out a piece of paper from his drawer. Let me just tell you why this is a bad idea. And he starts to work some numbers. He said, Let, let's do a cost analysis. 
I said, I've already done a cost analysis. I've worked it all out. I'm going to own the car 10 years. I already, no, no, you haven't done it. Let's do a cost analysis. So he puts the numbers on the paper. His numbers are about the same as mine. I'm going to take a car for at least 10 years. I already know this is going to pay off. Uh, he just, he doesn't, he, I, I don't understand all of this, why he is opposed to hybrids, but he's trying to tell me it's not a good deal financially. When that argument didn't work, then he says to me, he pushes all the papers aside and he says to me, let me guess, you're one of those, you, you just want to feel good about yourself. <laughs> I know, if you were here yesterday, you wonder if he knows the guy from Best Buy, right? <laughs> you just want to feel good about yourself. Are you one of those? Like, how do you answer that question? No. Okay, that's not the right answer. Yes, I'm one, I want to feel good. Yeah, you people, blah, 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 the earth and green, and you just want to drive around feeling superior. I know you people. You want to feel good about yourself. Everybody wants to feel good about themselves. Jesus says to his students at the dinner table that night, your question doesn't make sense in my kingdom. It's the kingdom of God now I've invited you into, and it's happening right now. What's the kingdom of God? Well, it's at once political, and it's at once religious or spiritual, if you prefer. Because the people living around Jesus already know the kingdom is the government. Whoever's in charge of the cities and the territory, the kingdom, it belongs to Caesar. It belongs to Herod. It belongs to Rome. And the conventional wisdom says, if Herod's sitting on the throne, if Caesar is sitting on the throne, God willed it. We already have a king and a kingdom. So if you tell me a kingdom of God, you seem to be implying God wasn't sitting on the same throne with Caesar or Herod or Rome. If God sits on the throne, God's priorities and God's agendas and, and God's convictions, they would somehow look different than Caesar or Herod or Rome. Yes. Jesus says, I invite you into the kingdom of God where the convictions, the agendas, the priorities, they look different than the kingdoms of this world. And in the kingdom of God, which is a very popular phrase in our gospels, in the Bible, the kingdom of God, your question makes no sense. Looking to the left, looking to look to the right, who's greater, greatest in this kingdom? That's a question for the powers of this world, Jesus says. I'm conferring upon you a different kind of kingdom. The disciples can't help it. They keep asking this question. I think it's interesting that Jesus does not squash their desire to be great. Nowhere in this passage or its parallels in the Gospels does Jesus ever say to the disciples, stop wanting to be great. Stop wanting to be good at what you're doing. Jesus doesn't do that, but he re redirects their desire to be great. He reframes it. He couches it in another perspective. And, and I believe our desire to be great and to succeed and to excel, couched in the priorities of Jesus, are part of what provide the equilibrium deep in our soul. Now, this doesn't fly so well in the world where everybody has some degree of power and most of us want to be great. In our world, do you remember back to 2009 when Pete Sampras lost the record, right, of the most Grand Slam titles? 
You remember that match in 2009? He loses the title when Nadal and Federer have this match. Federer, you know, takes the championship away from him. And, and, and uh, they create this incredible video. I think this is a Nike product. Listen to this. Anything. Seven years, you let me have this record. That's pretty cool. It's tough to swallow. It makes me want to cry. Double what I got. Mm, not bad. Congratulations, man. Congrats! This is your number. Thanks a lot for making us look so average. Congratulations, Roger. You did it. Right? Will you play it again from the top? I just want to hear the first few seconds at the very 15 beginning. 15 majors? Wow. I never won 15 anything. Seven years, you let me have this record. That's pretty cool. It's tough to swallow. It makes me want to cry. Double what I got. Mm, not bad. Congratulations, man. Congrats. This is your number. Thanks a lot for making us look so average. All right, Congratulations, that's the Roger. Line. Thanks a lot for making us look so what? Who wants to look average, right? You don't want to look average, Loma Linda University. You don't want to look average as students, as faculty, professors, employees of LUASC, wherever we are. The standard of excellence around this place is sky high. In fact, you can't be average to be here. In the last few days, I've had phone calls from three students who all desperately want to be students at Loma Linda University. And they want to know how to make that happen. What? In the world, does this teaching from Jesus mean in a campus like Loma Linda, where the competitive edge is vital to your survival? I'm going to ask my husband to come and join me. Now, um, he's really shy, this guy. Your name again, sir? Kirby. There's a microphone. Kirby. <laughs> I am shy. This is uh, Dr. Oberg. He teaches embryology. Those of you who come through first year medicine. So sorry. You're pretty good at it, I hear. <clears throat> That's what I tell That's you. That's what you tell me, okay. <laughs> now, we moved to Loma Linda to study. I was, you were about 21 and I was about 12, right? How do I answer that? I know. We were illegal when we came here. <laughs> No, we moved here uh, for a specific course of study for you. Um, we came in the summer of 1984, if you can believe it. 1980, I, I was 12. <laughs> Tell us about the summer of 1984. Well, the summer of 1984 started with getting a lovely letter from Loma Linda saying, thanks, but no thanks. Um, it had a little part at the bottom of the letter saying, your MCAT was good. We think that you're bright enough. You're just not motivated. Um, at that time, Dr. Hessinger um, talked to me about the possibility of coming on board on probation, which we don't do that anymore. But I came on probation. Um, and I had an opportunity to prove that I could be motivated. And what I hadn't done well in college, in their view, was compete. And so I got the opportunity to compete with medical students during my first couple of years here. Just the first few weeks, actually, because uh, if I remember, we enrolled in graduate classes, and uh, now the competition is on, right? 
Yes. Yeah, tell me about the first set of scores. <laughs> <clears throat> the first set of scores are difficult. Um, and you find out very quick that medical school is different than college. Um, and it is difficult to compete when you're dealing with the top 2% of college students yes. that already know how to compete. Yes. So it was challenging. It was challenging, but eventually. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I did get a letter in November that said I was off probation. I was now an MD-PhD student. All right. So now you're in the MD-PhD program. Ta talk to us about the uh, board's part one. <laughs> I really like you. <laughs> no, you love me. <laughs> I do. I do. Board's part one is another challenging point for most of us in medical school. Um, I had done relatively well in the first two years, and I apologize for that. I know I wasn't around much during those two. But um, I had done well, and I was anticipating uh, residency in maybe orthopedics, plastic surgery. Uh, I was looking at some very competitive residencies, and I knew it was pediatrics and surgery. I wasn't sure how I'd meld those, and I wanted options. And so boards part one was incredibly important to me. Even if I had done well, I wanted to make sure I really, really did well. You wanted a buffer there, so you had some choices. Correct. Right. So I was um, advised to take a, a study series for the boards. And I used that as my sole source, mm -hmm. rather than all the notes I'd gotten from my lovely teachers at Loma Linda. <laughs> and the rest is unfortunate history. <laughs> how did that uh, test score come back for you? So I think, I, I think McEnroe said it best. <laughs> Nobody wants to be. I was average. Nobody wants to be average. And looking back, that seems incredibly arrogant because average is still good, yet I wanted to compete. I wanted to be able to do well and get the residencies that I was interested in. The pressure of watching people go through this in an environment where average, which is exceptional in most other contexts, where average is just not quite good enough. Um, now, take it to today where uh, you not only teach, but you do some research, basic science research. Every year, dozens and dozens of scientists from this institution submit grants for funding from outside sources so that research can happen. Tell us just a, a little bit about that funding process. So in the last um, probably three to five years, also funding's become more difficult. Um, and Loma Linda is known as the School of Excellence. We do that in our teaching, and we are desperately trying also to, to elevate our research to that same level, which means we have to compete not just with other investigators here on campus, but throughout the nation. What percentage of grants get funded, do you know, nationwide? Um, it's, it's the, depends on which institute within the NIH, but it's somewhere between uh, one and six to about one and 12. So it's the upper 10 to 20%. Uh, again, very, very competitive. So having a good idea, saying it well, knowing people still might not be enough. Right, right. So. Honestly, when I say to you <laughs> that Jesus would say to us, your question about being greatest is irrelevant in my kingdom, what does that make you think as a person working in this context? Well, I love you dearly. <laughs> but it, it is 
not faith. I mean, it's, this is not science. Or we're science, what you're talking about is faith, and from the science standpoint, um, I have to compete. You have to compete to survive. I have to compete. Yeah. So to me, those words, although lovely, are not relevant. They don't, they don't help so much in, in the daily work around here. They don't make your work any easier, I guess. They don't. Right. They don't. And it's not as if that I'm wanting to step on people to get where I want to go. Right. But I want to be the best that I can be. And to do that, there is competition. There is ranking. There is the, and, and we know this in our schools, there is a ranking system. Thank you. See, that is the real world here, and I, didn't, I don't have to look any further than our history and watching my own spouse come through this process to realize our desire to be great, the pressure to be great is high around this place. I think Jesus is asking us to take all that, that uh, desire to exceed and excel and reframe it. This is not a kingdom of competition in the Jesus kingdom. It's a kingdom of cooperation, and it looks a little different because every person who has power in the kingdom of God has power for a reason. The question is not, or Jesus doesn't say, stop wanting to be great. Rather, he says, why do you want to be great? What's the greatness going to be for? To, what will the greatness serve in the end? What will we do with all of this greatness? To be honest, there are a lot of health science complexes around the world, and even in the United States, who can be great and even greater than Loma Linda. Loma Linda's greatness is not just to be ranked number one in the States or in the world. Our greatness is of a different nature. Jesus says this power will always be the kind of power that serves others. This greatness is for the, the point of serving the world, and I know that the leaders in Loma Linda understand this well and, and, and work hard to convey and relate this concept during the time the students are on campus. Everyone has power, but in the kingdom of God, power over will not be functioning. It's always a, a power under, the kind of power that kneels at the table like Jesus just did and begins washing the feet of the disciples, preparing them for a life of service. Jesus doesn't say, stop wanting to be great. Jesus just asks us, what are we going to do with that greatness in the world? Will our power trample over other people like the powers of this world? There'll always be another leader and another empire and another ruler. Will our powers look like that? Or will our powers for greatness take another course that looks a little more like Jesus? I know the competitive edge is not going away around here. The question is, what's the competition, the competitive edge, the advantage? What is it for? What will it do in the long run? So that's a heavy question on a Wednesday in the middle of the week. What are you going to do with this greatness you achieve while you're a student here? And what boundaries will we put in place to protect this kind of equilibrium, the, the kind of greatness Jesus is modeling, which I think brings us such deep satisfaction in our souls? What boundaries will we put in place to, to make sure the power that we have and the greatness that we achieve will always be to serve and elevate the other 
never to trample. Let me tell you about a physician, a surgeon. This surgeon by day is known, a very well-known well surgeon in a very prestigious location. But on Wednesdays, this surgeon is off duty. Every Wednesday, this surgeon has finally decided that the kind of frantic activity of his practice is not good for his soul. So over the long run, he's chosen to take a break every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, he could go anywhere, but he chooses to go to the reading room of his local city library. The first day in the reading room of the local library, as he looked around the room, he noticed a lot of elderly people go to the library, not the least of which the library provides a, um, a warm room, a dry place, toilets that function in the basement, and a vending machine for people who need a hot cup of broth or a cup of cocoa. The library functions as a quasi-shelter for the elderly in his city, he's learned. There's a core of them who join there on weekdays, about six of them who are always there, and on cold days, another eight or ten join them, which he says makes for a really frantic uh, time trying to get a newspaper. He knows them not by their names, but by the clothes they wear, because it seems whether they just prefer these outfits or this is, these are all the clothes they have, they seem to wear the same clothes every time. So he knows them by their outfits in particular. He, they don't talk in the reading room. They only talk downstairs by the vending machine. Sometimes they sleep under their newspapers, but there's one woman in particular. She's an avid reader. She reads them all, and she grabs the Journal of Abnormal Psychology in the middle of the day to finish up her reading. Reads case studies. He's become acquaintances with this one gentleman. He calls him handkerchief because he wears a red bandana around his neck. He learns later it's to reach up and wipe his dripping nose, which drips all the time. When this guy, handkerchief, walks, he, he, he walks with a wince on his face, and the surgeon notices that week after week after week. One day, handkerchief is walking by, and he's got this wince on his face, and he points down to his knees, and he says, it's the hinges. The hinges ain't good anymore. Oh. He learns about handkerchief that he's, well, he's had a career in amateur boxing, about 60 years, although most of his fights have been in the backyard or out in the street. He hasn't won anything. His wife died a while ago. He lives on Social Security. He walks eight blocks to the library and eight blocks home every day. The library's open. One day in particular, though, as and this handkerchief man is wandering across to go downstairs and use the restroom. The pain is particularly noticeable, and he's moaning a little bit, and it takes him a long time to get anywhere. And the surgeon says to him, the hinges, huh? And handkerchief says, no, nah, it's the toenails. I can't reach them, and they're awful long. Handkerchief goes down to the bathroom. The surgeon decides to go back to his office. He walks in the door. The nurse says, what in the world are you doing here? It's Wednesday. Don't you know patients just die on Wednesday in your world? He says, I need my nail clippers. She says, I'm not giving them to you. Last time you borrowed something from this office, it took six months to get it back. Come on, give me my nail clippers, and I need the heavy-duty kind. He goes back to the library. He catches up with Handkerchief, who's 
down in the restroom. He says to him, if you sit down, I'll clip your nails for you. So he sits down on a toilet. The surgeon bends down and he uh, goes for the boots and handkerchief says, don't bother untying them, just pull them straight off. He pulls them off. He can't tell if it's really, you know, if the knees are such a problem or it's that this guy always wears at least two pairs of pants every day. When he gets the boots off, he realizes he also wears at least two pairs of socks. The first layer of socks come off pretty easy, but the next two layers are stuck to his feet. He pulls them back and the man winces and he says, I'm sorry if I'm hurting you. He said, just take them away. And out come these toenails, the surgeon says, as thick as a thumb, looking like the horn of a ram growing out and underneath the pad of the foot and curled up into the skin. This is what the man's been walking on. And dried to every toe on the pad of his feet, dried blood where these nails have been pressing into his skin. No wonder he's been wincing. Takes the uh, nail clippers and realizes he hasn't brought the tools necessary for the job. But he works at it anyway. It takes one hour to get the first toenail off. Another hour for the second great toenail. The, the smaller nails go quicker. Handkerchief looks up and says to the surgeon, what do I owe you? He says, ah, it's on me today. What kind of a boy would I be if I took your money? But it occurred to the surgeon when he went back up to the reading room, if this guy can't cut his toenails, I wonder about the rest of them. And one by one, as the Wednesdays rolled by, he escorted them all to the restroom. He says, I, I confess, we got the strangest looks when I took the lady to the women's restroom. <laughs> and I told her to sit down on the toilet and I kneeled and people would come and go and look in and were pretty sure they shouldn't be there. <laughs> but he didn't stop until he'd clipped the nails of el every elderly person in the reading room. It is surprising, he says, what can happen if you just carry a pair of nail clippers around in your pocket. What a boundary that provides. What a reminder it became for what we do with our greatness in the world. May it be so for every person at Loma Linda University.